Well, it's an honor, church family, to get to be with you today, to get to stand up here and bring God's word to you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. That's where we'll be at in our passage today. We'll have the passage on the screens, but we want to encourage you to bring your Bible to church with you. That way, you know, and you can follow along with me and make sure that I'm not making stuff up up here or Pastor Jared or anyone else. If you don't have a Bible, come and find me afterwards. We got a whole closet of them over here. You can, you can have your pick, okay? Email me. I'd love to get, give you a Bible after the service if you don't have one. Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Before we get to our text, I want you to go back in time with me, though, if you would, back in time with me to the year 1820. And if you would, imagine with me that we're in the house of Thomas Jefferson, okay? And we are a fly on the wall in his room. And we're watching him as he opens his Bible to read from the Bible, to read his devotions, and as we are looking over his shoulder and he's leaning over his King James version of the Bible, we notice that there's something in his hand. And as we look closer, we realize he has a razor in his hand and a penknife, and he's carefully cutting out sections of scripture. He's pulling these pieces together these small sections of biblical text that would soon live in their own book that Jefferson would call The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. This was Jefferson's own version of sorts of his New Testament. He only selected scriptures that talked about Jesus as a good teacher, though. Anything that was mystical, miraculous, unnecessary to Jefferson, he omitted. He didn't include those. Nothing about his resurrection, nothing about his deity. He was a product of the Enlightenment. Many of y'all know that. And the Enlightenment valued reason above everything. And it had with it this kind of notion, the enlightenment, that we really can make a better world for ourselves. That kind of went with the enlightenment. So given that belief, Jefferson examined everything, even the scriptures, in light of his reason. And he assembled in his Bible his own version of Jesus that fit his mind. He used this special book for his own private meditation and devotions. It was a really secret book for Jefferson. It wasn't discovered until much later in his life. You can actually go and see this restored book in the Museum of the Bible in D.C. Some of y'all maybe have gone to see it. It's pretty awesome how they've restored it back together. But as you look at it, you can see the text clipped out, glued together to make a new version of the Bible. We can, we can sit here, we can hear this. Many of us maybe have heard of the Jefferson Bible. We, we know this. And we can gasp at the audacity 
of Thomas Jefferson to lean over the pages of the Bible with a, with a knife and cut sections of scripture out. But my concern is that Jefferson's cut and paste philosophy to the scriptures still lives on today, actually. We're still vulnerable as individuals, and I think as churches, to this kind of thinking when we come to the scriptures. And here's what I mean. Some of us only read our Bibles devotionally. And what do I mean by that? I mean, we turn back daily to the places of scripture that encourage us, the places that make sense to us. If I can say it this way, the places that make us feel good, that comfort us. Now hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't go to God's word for comfort and encouragement. We definitely should. My concern is if that's all we do and that's the only way we read the Bible, that's the problem. If that's the only thing we do with our Bibles, then it means a couple of things. One, we're spiritually malnourished. And two, we probably have a different view of God than the God of the Bible and the Jesus of the Bible. And that's the danger I'm concerned about today. As Christians, we're putting all of God's word together. That's what we're called to do, to read it all, to try and understand it all, even the difficult passages of scripture, to put it all together because we can't pick and choose as Christians either deliberately like Jefferson did by cutting out physical text, or my greater concern is just more subconsciously by going back over and over and over to the same text that we like that makes sense to us while ignoring a host of others. We can't do that. We can't do that as Christians. We have to put the whole, we have to labor individually and as a church to put the whole Bible together. And here's the thing, we trust when we do that 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 is where we find the deepest rivers of comfort, the deepest rivers of encouragement, the deepest rivers of joy, and understanding what all of God's word says to us. Amen? That's what we trust. Even the difficult passages that may seem like, you know, I think I would be more encouraged to avoid those. Actually, it's when we put it all together and we hear all that God has to say to us, we find the deepest rivers of blessing. Do we believe that? This is why we teach and preach expositionally here through books of the Bible, by the way. It's so that you're exposed to a whole book and we don't get to pick and choose the passage. It's just, you're getting the whole message of the book. So if you ever wondered why we preach this way here expositionally through books of the Bible, it's because we want to be able to say like Paul says in Acts chapter 20, if you remember, he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he says, we labored to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. That's what we want to do. As Christians, we want, to lab we want to labor to understand the whole counsel of God. And as a church, we want to help you understand what all of what God says to you. So we want to be faithful in that. We can't have a cut and paste philosophy even in our churches. Why am I saying all this? Why am I talking about Thomas Jefferson? Why am I talking about this philosophy of of reading the scriptures. Well, today the passage in front of us 
is not a feel-good passage. It isn't a popular passage. It doesn't appeal to our natural sensibilities. I've never seen this verse on a t-shirt. I've never seen this verse framed in somebody's home, in a Christian bookstore, on a coffee mug. This isn't one of those verses. By the way, I don't think we should put this verse on a t-shirt necessarily. Um, But it's not a popular verse. But again, I'll say, do we trust church family that God has deep rivers of comfort and encouragement and blessing and joy in all of scripture? We have to say yes. We trust that he does. So let's go to our passage. This is Matthew 8. In Matthew 8.18, you'll notice in your Bible, there's a section title above it. These section titles we know aren't inspired, but they're helpful. They're helpful. In most of our Bibles, the title over this section says something like, I'm sure, the cost of following Jesus. And this is a very helpful title. I'm glad it's in here. But I think there is more we can say about this passage, even right here at the beginning, And I want to give us our main idea right at the start here. And if you're taking notes, you can write this main idea down. Because I want it to begin provoking our thinking. And as we go along through the passage, I I hope to be able to show you that this is, in fact, what God is saying to us in this passage through Matthew in this gospel. So here's the main idea for us. Following King Jesus involves a great cost in this world, but it will yield eternal benefit. Following King Jesus involves a great cost in this world, but it will yield eternal benefit. Read with me this passage, Matthew 8, 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Father, I'm sorry, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. I want you to know I have wrestled with this passage this past week more than just this past week, as I've been thinking about this text over the last several weeks, going, this is a difficult saying from Jesus. We don't tend to think about Jesus speaking this way. Before going too far in our passage, I want us to back up just a little bit and catch some of the context coming before our passage today, the preceding context, okay? So where are we at in this book? And let's remember, so this is, We're in Matthew 8 now, but remember back, Jesus has finished teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, right? It was a long uh, 
portion of our church family where we were preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And he shows that he's come to fulfill the law. If you remember, in 517, that's what it says. You can turn there. That's an important, an important passage. He, come, he came to fulfill the law and bring clarification on the prevailing traditions and on the teachings of Moses. And at the end of his long sermon, Matthew tells us in verse 728, look there if you have a Bible, 728, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So in the context of our passage, Matthew wants us coming to Matthew 8, 18, understanding the unique authority of Jesus set against the scribes. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we're seeing Matthew is seeking to demonstrate Jesus' authority through a series of miracles. There's nine accounts of miracles in these two chapters, 8 and 9. Ten different miracles in total. And it's just like rapid fire. Matthew's showing us the demonstration of Jesus' authority. We saw in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches with authority. Now we see him demonstrating his authority in these miracles. And if you remember last week, I love Pastor Jared's sermon. Um, he told us three things. I'll just remind you of what he said last week. The three things he wanted us to see is the surprising people that Jesus healed. He wanted us to see the proper posture of these people. And also he wanted us to see the purpose of these miracles. More importantly, what Matthew wants us to see about the purpose of these miracles. Look down with me in 8.17. The verse before our passage, the summation of that section says this, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what's the purpose of these miracles? Fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 4. So this is important. As Pastor Jared mentioned this last week, the miracles were not intended to be the thing, right? They were pointing to a greater reality. They're pointing to a much greater reality of why Jesus has come. Jesus wasn't doing these miracles to start a traveling circus. I think Jared said that last week. Matthew wants his Jewish audience and us to see Jesus is the promised Messiah and he's come and he's validating his identity and his authority by performing these miracles. Do y'all see that? So that's what's come before us in the passage. And so I think to frame our text, we're looking again at Jesus's authority. What we see in our text, I think, are now two responses to Jesus's authority. Two responses of Jesus's identity and his authority. The first response comes from a scribe. The second response comes from one of Jesus's disciples. Each of these men, as they respond to Jesus, Jesus then responds back to them. And so we want to take each of these interactions in turn and figure out what's being taught to us from Scripture. So look down in verse 18, if you would. Let's first see what's going on here in our context, in our passage. It seems like what prompts the scribe to approach Jesus with his statement is Jesus giving orders to go to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. 
And so Jesus is seeking to break away from the crowd. And look what the scribe says in verse 19. A scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. It's almost like he's seen Jesus try to break away and he's going, I know you're trying to get away, but you can't get away from me. I will follow you wherever you're going. I'll follow you wherever you go. And it's almost like we're leaning in and we're thinking, okay, Jesus, I know what you're about to say. You're gonna say, finally, finally, my people have not been expecting me so far, but here is somebody that's, that's ready for me Come and follow me. I know what I said earlier about how the sons of the kingdom, they weren't ready for me in, in the centurion passage. Remember that? But I was wrong because this is the first one I've seen. Come and follow me. That's what we expect almost Jesus to say. But it's not what he says. Let's take a closer look. Notice the contrast of how the leper at the beginning of chapter 8 and how the centurion addressed Jesus they come up to Jesus. Remember, Jared was talking about the posture of those fit for the kingdom last week. And they come up to Jesus and they say, Lord, kurios. That word means owner. It means a master who is worthy of obedience. And this scribe, some of your Bibles translate scribe as teacher of the law. I think the NIV says the teacher of the law. He comes up to Jesus this teacher of the law, and says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. So even though this may have been a respectful way for this scribe to refer to Jesus, it does seem to catch our attention and break the pattern that we've seen before. And even the verse after, his own disciple calls him Kyrios, Lord, master, worthy of obedience, owner. He breaks that pattern and even though what this scribe seems like is offering nothing short of reckless abandonment, Jesus seems to not think so by his response to him. Jesus' reply seems to show that this scribe was missing critical information about the nature of discipleship especially being Jesus' disciple, a scribe would have known what it meant to be a disciple, to follow a rabbi, especially those who were influential, who were the smartest, who knew the most about the law. They knew what it was like to follow rabbis. But Jesus is not just like all the other rabbis, is he? We've already seen that. Jesus' message to the scribe, look back in verse 20, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. His message to him boils down to this. Do you realize that following me means that you have to be willing to give up even your home in this world? This is what a hole was for a fox. This is what a nest was, right, for a bird. And this scribe seems overeager, at least, and seems to think that Jesus will bring him great benefit immediately. Jesus tells him to count the cost and that following him would not be easy. And we're not told, interestingly, how the scribe responds. Then we have the second response from one of Jesus' disciples. Look at verse 21. It says, another of the disciples said to him, 
Lord, let me first go and bury my father. If the scribe was over-eager to follow Jesus, then this disciple is under-eager, less than eager. It's like he's starting to realize what the cost is, and he's beginning to backpedal. I want to say quickly, um, disciple here is probably being used in a loose sense. This doesn't mean that this disciple is a fully committed follower of Jesus. In other gospels, like in Luke chapter 6, we learn of a great crowd of disciples that were around Jesus. Uh, in John, we, we hear about disciples who heard a difficult word from Jesus and they turned and walked away from him. They left him. Um, we don't have a set group of 12 disciples until chapter 10 of Matthew. So we shouldn't necessarily see that this is a fully committed follower of Jesus, but he is one of his disciples. He has been following him around. So I want us to, I want us to, to just be sure that we've got that, we got that straight and we know who it is we're deal, interacting with here. But notice what the issue is. Notice what the issue is. The disciple says, Lord, let me first. Lord, let me first. The issue is priorities. Do you see that? Let me first go bury my father. Jesus' message to this disciple boils down to this. Following me is an allegiance that must be set above all other things, even the things that seem most dear to us, like our closest family relationships. It seems like a parallel passage in chapter 10 clarifies what Jesus is saying. Chapter 10, 37 says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. I wanna be clear, Jesus is not prohibiting you from attending your parents' funeral. To think that would be to miss the point, okay? He's not saying that. He is making a clear point that our allegiance to Jesus is to be the first and highest and greatest priority in allegiance in our life. Many commentaries say that this disciple's father probably hasn't died yet that he wants to wait around for his father to die so he can put the details together of his funeral, which would have been really important for the son of someone's father to do in that culture. But again, the issue is he has an allegiance. He has a priority that's rising above following Jesus. So when I read this, and maybe as I read it this morning, there's a rattling that I think that takes place in us. We're kind of rattled by Jesus's words. But I think in that rattling, it can be easy to miss something that Jesus is saying that's very important. That I want us to catch here. Jesus, in his shocking response to this disciple, don't miss what he's also saying. This, anyone who is not following me is dead. Let, leave the dead to bury their own dead, the spiritually dead to bury the physically dead. In other words, turning back from following Jesus because of worldly costs, because of competing allegiances, would be a great mistake. It would be a great 
tragedy. Do you see what he's saying? You can turn back and not follow me. But that is where the spiritually dead are. If you're with me, you'll have life. He's already taught us this, if you remember, in chapter 7, verse 14. The way is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Yes, he wants him to count the cost. Yes, he wants him to examine his priorities. But he also is calling this disciple to realize how high the stakes are when we're considering whether or not we're going to follow Jesus and be his disciple. So what does this mean for us today? This is a little bit about what I think is going on in the passage. What does it mean for us today? Well, first, Jesus is teaching us about two inadequate responses to Jesus, isn't he? Matthew's putting this together. It seems like he's showing us two inadequate responses to Jesus, responses that I think we ourselves are tempted with, two extremes, you might say. Number one, an overeager response to Jesus and a less than eager response to Jesus. And the second thing that I want us to see is that Jesus is then speaking into both of these inadequate responses and clarifying what it means to be a disciple of his. So how does he speak into these inadequate responses? First, by telling us the cost. And then second, what I want to show you, by telling us the benefit. He's actually pointing us, I believe, to the greatest benefit in the world when we're with Jesus instead of someplace else. So first, let's talk about the cost. What is Jesus teaching about what is involved with the cost of following him and being his disciple? Number one, he's teaching that the cost involves being willing to give up worldly security. I think that's what verse 20 is teaching, isn't it? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A home in that culture, and certainly in our culture, is a powerfully stabilizing base for us. We draw loads of security, don't we, from our homes. And Jesus is going right there to something that makes us feel that secure. And he's saying, are you willing to give a security up like that to follow me? That's what is involved when you choose to follow me. Are you willing to give up worldly security? Again, the scribe was probably motivated by a desire to rise in power and prominence. Jesus has just done really awesome things in front of him, but these miracles were supposed to point to something even more important, something even greater than the miracles. We're reminded in these words that we have to count the cost when we follow Jesus. We have to be willing to give up the things that make us feel most secure in this world. You know the things. Evaluate your heart this morning. What are the things that make you feel most secure? Jesus is saying to us, we have to be willing to give those up. It's interesting that we're not told how the scribe responds. It's almost as though we're being brought up to the edge of a cliff and we're looking over and we're going, well, I don't know what he said, but how would I respond to Jesus? How would I answer that response? to Jesus, if Jesus said that to me. It almost forces us, right, to answer that question for ourselves. 
How would we respond to Jesus if he said that to us? The second part of the cost, what does the cost involve? One, being willing to give up worldly security, but two, it involves giving our highest allegiance to Jesus. Our highest allegiance to Jesus. I think that's what Jesus is saying in verses 21 and 22. Remember how the disciple responds. Lord, let me first. Maybe us, our highest priorities. We could finish that sentence in a number of ways, couldn't we, in this culture. Let me first go take care of this. Let me first go take care of that. And Jesus is calling us to give our highest allegiance to him alone. Do we see our commitment of following Jesus like a commitment laid alongside other equal commitments? Because if we do, that's not biblical Christianity. It's not being a disciple of Jesus. If that's how you imagine your life, you may not be a disciple of Jesus. If that was what you imagine Christianity to be, a commitment that's laid alongside other commitments, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not being a follower of Jesus. Our allegiance to Jesus must rise above all other commitments in this world, even family commitments. And especially at this time of year, that is difficult to evaluate. I'll be honest with my, with my own heart. Yes, Jesus is using hyperbole here, but we can't miss his point. It's clear. If you're going to follow me, I'm your highest priority. A Christian's heart at the core must be able to say, if they're talking to someone else, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. Can we say in our heart of hearts, when we're alone in a closet by ourselves, in our heart of hearts, can we say that if all we had was Christ, would that be enough? Would that be enough for us? I saw a video of a church recently inviting people to their Christmas services. And they said, you know, I know 2020 has been a really difficult year. But we have so many things to be thankful for, including Jesus. That's exactly what they said. And I thought, I know they didn't mean that. That was not a good way to phrase that. Jesus is not one of the things out of many that are just awesome that we can be thankful for. He is everything to us. We don't have any hope. We don't have any peace. Without him, we don't really have anything to be, in the ultimate sense, thankful for unless we're enjoying the blessings that God's giving us in light of him. Jesus isn't a thankfulness laid alongside other thankfulnesses. He is the greatest gratitude of our hearts, isn't he? He's everything to us. And the things that we do around Christmas, around our families, and exchanging gifts, which are all good Good things, they pale in comparison to what, who Jesus is to us. He's the biggest deal of our lives. Is he the biggest deal of your life? Second, Jesus is pointing us to the benefit, I think. He's pointing, yes, the disciple, but I think us today about 
the greatest benefit in the world. Yes, he's talking about a cost in following him, and that's what rattles us when we hear this text. But I believe he's also telling us about the greatest benefit in the whole entire world. And it could be easy to miss, but I think it's here. Because he's saying, if you turn back, you will continue to be among the spiritually dead. But if you follow me, you will have life. Jesus, do you think, do you imagine Jesus as someone who's like a killjoy? He's kind of squashing our greatest hopes. And he's kind of a fuddy-duddy. Do we imagine Jesus that way? This is not the Jesus of the Bible. Do we know that? I've already talked to you about Matthew 7. The way is narrow, the way is hard, but it leads to life. That's where I'll take you. Ultimate, eternal life. In chapter 9, verse 39, do you remember? It says, whoever finds life will lose it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Will find what? Life. You'll have real life if you're with Jesus, even though there's a cost. So the big idea is, yes, following Jesus. Following Jesus involves a great cost in this world, but it will yield eternal benefit. Do you remember that? Can we re remind ourselves of that, church family? So how do we apply this to our lives? What's, what, how can we respond? First, a word to those who are in Jesus, who are Christians, and then I'll, a quick word to those who aren't following Jesus. Number one, to those in Christ, we have to remember that Jesus has lovingly told us clearly what to expect when we follow him and what to value above all. He hasn't hidden these truths from us. Sometimes the greatest abuses to us come from when people withhold truth from us. There may be some of you in here that have been deeply hurt or embittered by somebody who has not told you an overt lie, but who has kept back truth from you that you needed to hear, that you needed to hear. Jesus has not withheld anything from us. He's told us plainly what to expect. He's told us the truth. The second thing, we have a call from Jesus today to evaluate our priorities. We remember that following Jesus is not a commitment that's just laid alongside other commitments, but our commitment to Christ rises above all other commitments. He's our highest allegiance. And can people tell this by how we spend our time, how we spend our weekends, how we spend our money, the people who know you best and who love you the most, what would they say is your highest commitment? If you have children who are watching you up close, what would they say is mommy's or daddy's highest commitment? That's a terrifying thing for me to ask with three kids now. In our evangelism, this certainly means something, doesn't it? When we are calling other people to follow Jesus, we can't withhold the cost from them. We have to tell them the cost. If Jesus doesn't try and bait and switch his disciples, we shouldn't try and bait and switch others that we tell. That means something for us as a church too, doesn't it? It's tempting to want to draw a crowd through ways that are less than godly. 
at a church. It's tempting to want to be used greatly by God to bring someone to Christ. And those are great joys. But if we've tried to bait and switch somebody by offering something that Jesus hasn't offered, we're, we're in danger. If Jesus doesn't try to bait and switch others, then neither should we as individuals and neither should we as a church. We need to be clear about that. Listen to J.C. Ryle and what he says is the greatest damage that can be caused when we're not clear about expectations for those who seek to join Christianity or our churches. Listen to what he says. Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession and talk fluently of experience. Nothing has caused more harm to Christianity than that. That deserves our reflection. If our churches are to be a light for the glory of God to the neighborhood around us, then it can't be good for us to just fill the membership of our church with people who aren't really following Jesus, right? Our churches that are supposed to be kingdom outposts, we've been saying, are to be bright beacons of gospel hope for the lost world around us. So to the non-Christian, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, maybe you have felt over-eager to follow Jesus in your life. And if you are, hear the words of Jesus today. Following him will be costly, but it's worth it. Following him will be costly, but it's worth it. Jesus has no desire to bait and switch you. If you've been checking out Jesus and following him around and jumping from church to church, it's going to be difficult to follow Jesus, but it is worth it. He is telling you how you can find life, even in this passage, I believe. Are you willing to trade the fleeting securities of this world for an eternal, invincible security in Christ? Are you willing to trade that? That's what Jesus is offering us. Or maybe you're one who's less than eager to follow Jesus and you feel like you're backpedaling. Hear the and you, and you want to go take care of other things first before you follow Jesus, hear the urgent message from Jesus today. Following him means he's your highest allegiance. What does this mean for all of us around Christmas? Well, we can't miss, we want to put this in perspective, that the cost we pay in following Jesus is nothing compared to the cost that he paid to reconcile us from God. We have to put this in perspective, right? This is what Christmas is all about. In Philippians 2, you go and read that this week. The exalted Son of God dove out of heaven, taking on human flesh, and became a baby, and was born in the most unlikely of circumstance, humbling himself in obedience to God the Father. He suffered terribly himself on the way to the cross to die in our place. Why? So that we could have invincible hope invincible life security forever this is the cost that jesus had himself and if our savior did that for us then certainly any cost that we pay in following our messiah jesus is worth it following jesus in this world will involve a cost but it yields eternal benefit. In closing, I just want to quickly remind us of John 6, John 6, 66. In that passage, Jesus says a really difficult word. You can go read it this week, a really difficult word. And it says, 
that after Jesus has spoken that difficult word, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And I just want to tell you, coming to this text this week, it weighed heavy on my heart because I thought, I could turn some people away by this verse. But listen to what Jesus says in John 6, 67. He says to the 12 disciples, he turns to them after many disciples leave him and he says, do you want to go away as well? And do you remember what Peter says to him? To whom where we go? Or to, to, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And my prayer, my hope for all of us today is that we'd be able to say in faith, yes, Jesus, you've called us to something that's costly, but where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We will follow you. The band's gonna come up. I'm gonna pray for us now. Maybe you need to follow Jesus for the first time today because you've never followed him. You've never really been his disciple. I wanna encourage you to take care of that today, to follow him. Hear his urgent word to you today. You can't find life anywhere else but him. Yes, there's a great cost, but there's an eternal benefit. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you sent your son who wasn't just telling us the truth, but who was the truth. And that because he has the truth, we can trust him. Because he is the truth. He is the only one who's really trustworthy. We can trust him with our whole lives. Thank you for sending him. Lord, in a culture that devalues, a culture that devalues anyone who has truth claims, we realize how ridiculous this message can sound to the world around us. But you have the words of eternal life. Jesus, you went to the cross and died, but you rose again, vindicating all of your claims, and we can trust you. Thank you for telling us, God, how we can find life. And in this time of year, as we think about Jesus there in a manger, we stand in awe of him. And I pray, Lord, you would find us faithful, following him with everything with no other equal allegiances. God, we set you above and we count the cost and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.